Let's pray together. You know, those Advent verses that were read a little bit earlier, Luke chapter 1, says that the Messiah was coming, he was announced, and there were several things that says he was going that he has come to do. And I love the final verse, uh, Luke 179, says that he would be coming to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge and we even proclaim this morning as your people, we, we understand now as believers that that's exactly what you came to do, Father. And if we were to take the time, if only we could, for one after another to tell the story of how we came to know Jesus Christ, how we came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, that's part of our story, that, that in one way or another we were dwelling in darkness. Father, we had no hope. We were without God in this world and then somehow, some way, you broke through. You sent someone with the message of the gospel. Someone who had the light of Christ, the truth, the hope of the gospel. You brought them to us. And, and maybe it was immediately and maybe it took a long, long time. But so many of us here, Father, this morning can say, and then there came a day and an hour and a moment when I was saved. When I repented of my sin, I called on Jesus Christ as Savior. Now light shines in the darkness. And I have one who leads me in the way and in the path of peace. Father, those of us who know Christ this morning are so grateful. We're so thankful. We're particularly thankful for this season, this Advent Christmas season we're now entering into that reminds us that truly light has come into the world and and the darkness couldn't stand the light. And Father, we pray for those among us here this morning who may be aware of that message, maybe not, but have not yet received it. And we pray that in this time together, particularly now as we turn to your word, Father, that you would speak truth to each and every heart, that those here this morning who don't know Christ would be made aware of and convicted of sin and drawn to the cross and repentance and saving faith. Father, that those of us who do know Christ, Father, that we would trust you, Father, not trust me, not trust any preacher, any man, but Father, to trust you and your spirit to lead us in the way of truth and of peace. Father, we pray that in this time together, you truly would be the one who teaches Father, we realize for that or anything else good to happen here this morning, we need your Holy Spirit. And Father, we know he's here. We know he's everywhere all the time, but we invite him. We want, Father, the Spirit of God, your Holy Spirit, to know he is welcome here among us today, to move in our hearts, to to work in our lives, to convict us of sin, to, to, to send us on the path of righteousness. Father, we ask particularly now as we look at your word that your Holy Spirit would be the one who guides us in truth that your Holy Spirit would come and guard us from confusion and error and misunderstanding. Father, by the power and the presence, Father, the the ministry of your Holy Spirit, Father, you deliver us from whatever we carried in today. Some of us came carrying heavy burdens. Some came carrying sorrows. Some just utterly distracted. We pray you'd sweep all of it away so that in these precious few moments together we might see Jesus, that the light might shine in the darkness that still remains Father, we ask that in all we do now that we might see Jesus. May we see him clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see him only this morning as we go to your word. And in a little while when we leave, God, as always, may we leave rejoicing. Not that we came to church, not that we had a great Thanksgiving weekend, but that for a few moments together we sat at the feet of Jesus, who loved us enough to lay his life down and then take it up again in victory for our salvation. It's him we praise, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. While you're sitting down, we'll allow the boys and girls to head out for Children's Church. 
as always, and, and if you're visiting as well, your boys and girls, five-year-olds up to second grade, they are so welcome to participate in our children's church time. Head out the door, and they'll take it from there. They'll come back at the conclusion of our service. I want everybody else, though, those of you uh, staying behind in here, to grab your Bible, if you would. And if you don't, get up next to somebody who has one, if you don't have one in your possession. And I want you to turn, of all places, to the book of Second Thessalonians. Turn in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians. If you're visiting, you don't really know the significance of why I say of all places, but I'll see if I can make that clear here in our first couple of minutes together in God's words. Specifically, I want you to get to the book of 2 Thessalonians, and I want you to turn to the beginning of chapter 2, where this morning we're going to look at the first 12 verses of this chapter and continue working our way through 2 Thessalonians right up almost to Christmas time, not quite. Uh, but finish uh, something that we began a long, long time ago, which is a study of Paul's letters, his two New Testament letters to the church of believers in a city called Thessalonica. And what you need to know, uh, this is by way of reminder or sort of connecting the dots for those of you who've been around here a while. Uh, this may be some bit of introduction to those of you who are visiting or new uh, as of late. But what you need to know as we begin this morning is is that today's sermon is actually one I intended to preach exactly nine weeks ago, nine Sundays ago uh, today. In fact, as some of you know, every August, the month prior to when I planned originally to preach this sermon, every August our elders give me a month to study, uh, to keep on working but not preach and study. And, and one of the things I spent significant time on last August was mapping out a preaching calendar of passages and themes and titles and, and notes and all this stuff. And I had, as much as I ever have coming into September. I'm pretty sure I don't know that I've ever felt more prepared than I did this year to know exactly what I thought I was supposed to preach on, beginning back on Labor Day, right on through New Year's Day, and on into January and beyond. And I want to tell you, I felt pretty good about it. I thought, man, God's given me a plan. I know where we're headed. And then one week into that brand new plan came our almost flood disaster of 2016. Those of you who are here, you remember we were displaced for two Sundays. It threw everything out of whack. All sorts of things began to change. So immediately my plan had been interrupted. And then immediately on the heels of that, as I've been sharing with you in recent weeks, my wife and I went to a conference, the National Renewal Conference for Pastors in Denver. And, and it was at that conference back in late September that God planted some seeds in my heart for, for what eventually became a, a seven-week study in the theme of biblical revival. So by my count, that means I'm now nine weeks off where I thought I was going to be back at the beginning of September. Not only that, it's not just my life that has been disrupted and changed and strange things happening uh, uh, as far as, as plans and ideas over the last nine weeks. As I thought about it, it's been a pretty interesting nine weeks in our nation and in our world as well. In that time, these past nine weeks, our nation has endured the most interesting and unusual and unprecedented presidential election in American history. Add to that, and to me this is insult uh, to injury in some respects, the Dallas Cowboys are 10-1. and one. They've won 10 games in a row. You can cheer about something this morning, right, Nebraska fan? Not only that, to top it all off, as we were in fact reminded as one of the praises on Wednesday evening, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. And <laughs> not planned, not planned. <laughs> 
Why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you it to you for this reason. When you put all those sorts of things together and whatever else has gone on in your life in the last nine weeks or however long it's been, I have come to or been actually reminded of something God has been impressing on me now for quite some time, and it is this. All of it goes to show and prove one thing. We human beings are truly lousy prophets. We human beings are truly lousy prophets. What I mean by that is this. We don't know nearly as much about the future as we think we do. Our plans are not nearly as secure and sure as we think they are. Life is not necessarily, the world is not necessarily going precisely in the direction that we think it is. And interestingly, and I believe not coincidentally, that was precisely the situation here where we are resuming our study this morning in the second letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Because where we're picking the story, the the letter up this morning, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is dealing with a theme. He's dealing with a biblical topic, doctrine, whatever you want to call it, that is commonly referred to, in fact, it's what he calls it here, the day of the Lord. Now, if that term, the day of the Lord, sounds familiar, it should if you have been here, if you were here, as we were going through our study of 1 Thessalonians. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul began speaking in answer to a question the Thessalonian church had about the day of the Lord. They were confused about it, and Paul was writing to clear that confusion up. And what he informed them Again, here we're connecting dots at this point. What he informed them in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that the day of the Lord is a a season. In fact, it's the final act in all of human history. God already has it planned out. The final act in human history that will encompass, if we understand, if I understand the scriptures correctly, it will begin with a seven-year period of great, terrible tribulation, and then it will immediately continue or go on, the day of the Lord will, into a 1,000-year earthly kingdom where Jesus Christ rules over the entire world. A 1,007-year roughly period, the day of the Lord. And the point or or, or the reality of the day of the Lord is this, that that is a season, the final season in human history, where every single person who has ever lived will get exactly what God has promised to give them. What do I mean by that? I mean those who have refused and rejected Jesus Christ. Those who said, I want nothing to do with your gospel and your salvation will be judged. That's what the Bible says. Whereas those who have repented and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, we are told beginning in that period will be rewarded beyond their wildest imagination. And in this passage, or excuse me, in that passage, back in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's point at that particular juncture was telling the Thessalonian believers and us by way of studying the scriptures as well that that day of the Lord is not something to be feared. It's not something, despite the fact there is a seven-year tribulation and there's all sorts of stuff going on around and leading up to it, Paul's message was, do not be afraid. And here's why. Here's what he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, because God has not destined his people for wrath. He's destined his people for eternal salvation. So he said, don't be afraid. But here at the start of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it is clear right from the very start that somebody's been messing with the message. 
That somebody has taken what Paul said and corrupted and twisted and turned it all around. Evidently, what, what appears to have happened between the end of Paul's letter we call 1 Thessalonians and his writing of this letter this morning we call 2 Thessalonians is that in Paul's absence from that city, Paul went to Thessalonica, he led some people to Christ, they started a church, he got them going, and then he left. Evidently, in Paul's absence, false teachers, they didn't identify themselves that way, but that's what they were, false teachers rolled into town. And they began to tell, for whatever reason, uh, the believers, the true believers in Jesus Christ at Thessalonica, that this period they had been so concerned about, the day of the Lord, had already begun. Now to us, we go, what's the big deal? That doesn't necessarily get us all stirred up, but it did to them. And, and it did so probably, it probably led them, it got them stirred up because it probably led them to one of two, maybe both, very fearful conclusions were, were present in their congregation. Maybe there were other sort of uh, fearful conclusions as well. But at the very least, the fact that someone had come into town after the Apostle Paul said this day of the Lord that Paul said, don't be afraid of, said it had begun, and the reason they are scared is because it led them to these conclusions. One possibility, one reason they may have been stirred up and afraid is because they, that led them to believe that somehow they had missed the return of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ had come back for his church as he promised, and he must have taken everybody else but forgotten about us because here's the day of the Lord, and we didn't think we were going to be here. The other possibility, again, maybe within that same congregation, maybe these were competing views, is the possibility that maybe it led some of them to conclude, well, if the day of the Lord has really begun and all these things Paul talked about are about to happen, maybe Jesus isn't coming back at all. We thought he was, and he said he was, but maybe the plan changed. And so there's these fearful, worrisome thoughts and ideas and conclusions floating around this congregation, and that's why in the 12 verses we are about to look at here this morning, Paul had one emphatic message to deliver. He said, there's one thing I want you guys to know and say to you because of all this that is going on. One emphatic message is the title of this morning's sermon. Paul was saying, he was writing to say to them, please remain calm. Despite what you're hearing, despite what you're thinking, as the people of God, please remain calm. And beginning in verse one, look at your Bible. This is how he does it. This is what the word of God says. Now we request you, we, is as verse, chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Silas and Timothy, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, why does Paul say that before we go any further? Paul says, you're hearing these things, they've got you all stirred up, got you all worried about what's going to happen, what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen to the world. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be shaken. I don't want you to be disturbed. I don't want you to be rattled. Why? Well, first of all, because of three things he was about to tell them. Paul says, first of all, I don't want you to be rattled because there are three signs that the end is near. And this is the first thing I want you to see in the passage this morning. Paul says, because there are three signs that the end of the world, the day of the Lord, is near and as you're about to see, none of them have happened yet. They hadn't happened back then, by the way, nor have they happened yet today. And as we read on through the rest of the passage, Paul tells us what these things are. He says, don't be afraid because some stuff has to go down first. He begins to explain it in verse 3 this way. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember? 
that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. And you know what restrains him, this man of lawlessness now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, restrains this man of lawlessness, will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now that's a lot of stuff, right? There's a lot going on there, a lot of details, a lot of teaching, a lot of instruction, a lot of caution, warning, and all the rest. But simply put, Paul's message to the Thessalonians, once again, is to remain calm. Hey, gang, just chill out. Relax for a few minutes. Why? Because what he just told us here is, he, he said, guys, you can't be in the day of the Lord. I know somebody came telling you that you are. And the end of the world, as we know it's upon us, and you missed something, and something's gone wrong, and the plan has been changed. Don't believe them. Do not believe them. You cannot be in the day of the Lord, Paul says, because there are certain things that must happen first, and clearly they have not happened yet. And so he said, here's the three things you need to look for. You'll know the day of the Lord is upon us. The day of the Lord will be on his way when three things, there are three signs the end is near. He mentioned them here. Let me walk you back through them. Number one, first thing Paul says to be on the lookout for, the first thing that will signify that we are in or approaching the day of the Lord is something that he refers to, number one, as the apostasy. The apostasy, which is mentioned actually very, very briefly in verse three. It's the, of the three things, it's the one he deals uh, least with. When he says this, look at your Bible again, verse three. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy, some of your Bibles use the word rebellion, comes first. Now that term, in the original language, literally means falling away. There will be a great falling away, and what we believe, again, there's a lot of stuff here that's a little bit mysterious, that's why the Thessalonians were confused, but what we believe, or what at least I believe, and I understand Paul to be talking about here, is he's talking about people who fall away. He's talking about people who in some way, shape, or form have, have claimed the label Christian. They live in what they consider a Christian culture. They periodically, maybe even regularly, attend a Christian church, but they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. They are Christians in name only. They have the label, but they lack the relationship. And Paul is saying there is a group of people, or they, there will be such a group of people present in the world, and that as the end of the world draws near, they are going to abandon any, abandon any allegiance to, any association with anything Christian whatsoever. Having only the label, but not the relationship, they say, we're out of here. Why? Well, it's possible they're going to say that because as the end of the world approaches, it'll be very difficult to be a Christian persecution and opposition and hardship and suffering. It will not be a popular thing. And if, if you've got the label but not the relationship, well, who wants the label if the label only leads to trouble? I'm out of here. Don't want anything to do with it. Or another possibility, that, that may be one cause of this apostasy, this great falling away, 
Another possibility that's suggested is that it could be something that happens after Christ returns for his church, after the rapture, if you believe that's coming at the beginning of the tribulation period, and, and suddenly all true believers in Jesus Christ are gone, and those who thought they were in, but they aren't, they don't have the relationship, never repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ, are so disillusioned and so distraught, they're like, I guess this thing was, was a fake all along too. And so they apostatize they fall away. And whatever the case, however it goes down, the bottom line is this. We are not just talking about a few rogue congregations here. We're not talking about a smattering of people throughout the world. We're talking mass quantities of human beings. So I want nothing to do. One time I thought I did. One time I identified in name only. But I want nothing to do with this Christ and this faith. And, and so having never truly believed in the first place, it's not something that can happen to a believer Someone, that never, someone who never truly believed in the first place, they fall away from any connection to the faith and instead fall in line with the second thing Paul talks about here. A second sign that the end is near when he talks about the man of sin. Or, or the trans, some translations say the man of lawlessness. You may be more familiar with the term the Antichrist. Paul says the second sign that the end is near will be the appearance, the revelation, the disclosure of a man of sin, or again, as I said, the Antichrist. And by the way, despite what you've read on Facebook, he is neither of the people who just most recently ran for president. I know everybody thinks so, but it's not true. There's something more sinister going on in this passage than that. Paul says there's a, a character who's going to appear on the world stage. There's someone who is coming and what Paul's talking about, in keeping with what Daniel said, the prophet back in the Old Testament, and Jesus himself said when he was here doing his ministry, Paul's talking about someone who, if you look at the rest of verse 3 in your Bible, he says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, he's a son of destruction. One who opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the very temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Uh, you go down a little bit further to verses 9 and 10, the, the, the information, the revelation about him continues. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, you know as well as I do, our world's seen some wicked rulers. We've seen some, some incredibly wicked people in positions of power down through the course of history. It's always been that way, and many of them have done incomprehensibly evil things. Our world's seen some bad dudes, but what Paul's saying is here, here is none of them come close to what this individual will do. What this particular leader, this literally man of lawlessness, man of sin, this, as it says elsewhere, antichrist will be like. Because he will exalt himself as God and most of the world will believe him to their own horrific and eternal destruction. And Paul says you can't be in the day of the Lord because that hasn't happened yet. That, that character has not yet appeared on the world. So just chill out. <laughs> just calm down. There has not yet been an apostasy. There has not yet been a revelation uh, or a disclosure of the man of sin. And the day of the Lord won't come until he appears. And what verses 6 and 7 tell us is the pivotal moment of his appearance will be the third sign that the end is near when Paul talks about the removal, what he refers to as the removal of the restrainer. There is number one, an apostasy. Number two, a man of sin. Number three, Paul says, this man of sin will appear when the restrainer is 
removed. Because what Paul says here, again, in this passage, is that there's something holding this man of sin back. Now, it may be that he's not even on, alive on the planet yet. That's, again, God knows when this plan is going down. But whenever this particular individual is born and, and, and appears on planet Earth and, and, and grows up and becomes whatever who he's going to be, it says whose activity or whose preparation is in accord with the very plan of Satan, what Paul says here in this passage is that he cannot, not only will he not, he cannot appear on the scene until the very moment in God's timeline when God says, okay, that time has come. And what will bring it about, he says, there is a restrainer who will be removed. So it'll be in God's timing. But there's something, at least to me, there's something frustrating about this passage. Because while it seems pretty clear, if you look at verse 6, that the Thessalonians knew who, what, whatever this particular restrainer happened to be, we don't. Look at verse 6. Look at what he says. Paul says, actually, going back to verse 5, don't you remember while I was with you, I was telling you these things? He says, "And, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time it will be revealed. And that's great for the Thessalonians, but he doesn't bother to go on and tell us what they know, and so we don't. And so we're left with this mystery. They knew it. Paul, you couldn't write one more sentence for us just to tell us what to be looking for, and apparently in God's design, the answer to that is no. As such, the identity of this restrainer who is to be removed, revealing the man of sin, is one of the most debated questions in end times Bible prophecy. And well, I hate to say so, I don't really know for sure who or what this restrainer is either, but I've got an idea. I have a sense, and I'm going to tell you what I think, but I'm going to preface it as you've heard me preface uh, things many time be- times before, that what I'm about to say to you is not necessarily, thus saith the Lord, all right? This is, thus thinketh Aaron, and he might be right, but he could be wrong. So let me tell you what I think Paul's talking about here. When he says, this man of sin will be removed, we know the day of the Lord is upon us, upon the world, and the man of sin is is revealed, I think Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think when Paul says there is a restrainer to be removed, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and I think that for several reasons. First, technically speaking, when you look, and I want you to do this with me, look at verses 6 and 7, where Paul talks about this restrainer. First of all, in verse 6, this restrainer is referred to in, in an impersonal or a neutral sort of way. He says, and you know, Thessalonians, what restrains him now? What restrains the man of sin now so that in his time will be revealed? But in verse 7, it becomes personal and it becomes masculine. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What does that tell us about this restrainer? That number one, it's a, some sort of very powerful force, but number two, it's a force with personality, okay? There's power and personality. To me, that would suggest the Holy Spirit. Second reason I think it's probably the Holy Spirit is practically speaking, when, when you're talking about someone as, as wicked and destructive as Paul says this antichrist, this man of sin, this man of lawlessness is going to be, seems to me there's only one being in all of the created universe powerful enough to hold someone whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan back, and that would be who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Third, I think, this is probably the Holy Spirit because of of a term Paul uses in verse 6 when he says, again, he doesn't disclose to us, but to them, you know what restrains this man of sin now. 
Because when Paul uses the word know in verse 6, get technical on you for just a sec, all right? There, there's one Greek word, that probably the most familiar Greek word for knowledge, and it's, it's book knowledge, objective knowledge. It's the kind of knowing that comes because you read it in a book, you saw it on a screen, someone spoke a fact to you, you heard, received, and believed it, now you know it. That is not the word Paul uses here. The Greek term that Paul uses here refers to inner knowledge, a perception, something that isn't known because you saw it with your eyes and absorbed it with your mind, something that has been impressed upon your heart. Now, where does the Bible say, for a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells? Within me, within you. So this knowledge, Paul says, this knowledge you have, it's not book knowledge. It's, it's perception, it's instruction, it's something in your heart that has been revealed and, to and impressed upon you. Again, that would signify to me, when you put it alongside these other criteria, that he's probably talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just say, you may disagree, but let's play along for a minute. Let's just say I'm right, that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, that begs the question, how can the Holy Spirit be removed? What would it mean for the Holy Spirit, the omnipresent, everywhere, all the time, Holy Spirit to be removed? Well, the Bible tells, or at least the Bible, I think, indicates what the answer or one answer might be. And I think, and again, I think this is maybe not coincidental, that it, it, it's directly sort of connected to something we've been talking about here the last several weeks. We've been talking about revival. And we, we use as our template for revival Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit God's people are together, true believers. The Holy Spirit came upon the church, upon believers in a way the Holy Spirit had never come before. He came and indwelt the apostles and then sent them out in the world on mission. And the Bible says that everyone who's ever trusted Christ ever since, man, woman, and child, that the moment they're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live within them. Okay, it's been happening that way ever since. Even your five-year-old who trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within that child. Same way he lives as believers in me and in you. So here's my question. Could it be that the removal of the restrainer is some sort of counterpoint or complement to Pentecost? That there was a time on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt God's people. That mighty rushing wind came and, and indwelt them all. Could it be that the way the Holy Spirit leaves is by taking all of those people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells off the face of the earth, right off the planet, the return of Christ, the rapture? It's one very, to me, very strong possibility because when Jesus Christ returns for his people, every single person who's alive and has trusted Christ in whom that Holy Spirit dwells disappears from the scene, right? Now, the Holy Spirit is still present because God's everywhere all the time because God is spirit, but that special indwelling, perhaps restraining presence, Holy Spirit's the one who restrains evil in the world. He's the one who convicts and restrains evil in my life. So if, if we're all removed from the scene, could it be that that's what Paul is talking about here? Again, you may agree, you may disagree, but I would simply say this to you. It seems that for the day of the Lord to begin, something that dramatic has to happen. It's not a small thing, it's a big thing that takes place. And, and again, Paul's message, again, agree, disagree, you want to go home and chew on it for a while, that's fine. Paul's message is simply this, all three of those things, however they come about, whatever they are, all three, apostasy, man of sin, restraint or removed, must occur before the day of the Lord begins and the end of the world as we know it arrives. Paul says this stuff has to happen. And however you slice it, again, whether you think I'm right or you've got your own opinion, that's fine. Bottom line, pretty scary stuff, right? <laughs> 
This is not easy teaching. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about hard teaching, tough stuff in the Scripture. But here's what I want you to understand, and here's what I want to remember as well. Paul did not write these things to scare us. Repeat after me. Paul didn't say this to scare us. All right, you may not believe me, but that's a fact, all right? Paul did not write these things to frighten us, to scare us, to send us home to worry about the end of the world and how it's all going to go down. In fact, the reality is he wrote what he wrote here for the very, the precisely opposite reason. And that's why what I want to show you next, in this same passage, having shown you or pointed out Paul's three signs that the end is near, I want to then offer you two assurances that we can cling to. All right, this is scary stuff. This is serious stuff. But we're children of the day. We're children of the light. We belong to Jesus Christ, and God's given us some assurances. And in this passage, Paul gives us two assurances we can cling to, however frightening we may find this particular instruction to be. Two assurances we can cling to. But before I tell you what they are, let me ask you a question. How many of you, just simple show of hands, have in any capacity at some point in your life ever been a teacher? I, I mean, just school teacher, Sunday school teacher, homeschool. Who's ever taught somebody else something? All right, most of us, right? In some way, shape, or form. All right, now, those of you, you can put your hands down. Those of you who just raised your hands, would you agree with me when I suggest that one of the primary motives that keeps teachers teaching, one of the primary factors that keeps preachers preaching, that keeps us doing what we are doing, is that people have extremely short memories? Would anybody agree with me when I say that? I mean, isn't that half the battle of teaching? You're trying, to, you're trying to express, you're trying to convey new information, but you spend half the time. Now, do you remember what we talked about yesterday? Do you remember what we talked about last week? Half of the battle or more in teaching is simply reminding people of things they were already taught and have forgotten. I think that's probably the case more often than not. But have you noted, if you look at verse 5, Paul felt the same way here. He's given us this instruction. He's given us this information. And then he just sort of like interjects in verse 5. Don't you remember? When I was with you, I already told you this stuff, gang. I already shared this information with you. Now, it's possible when Paul said that, that he was talking about the three things we just walked through. Apostasy, man of sin, removal of the restrainer, all that kind of stuff. But why did Paul have to do that? Why did he have to walk them back through that information again? Well, verse 2 tells us. Because they had been quickly shaken from their composure. They had been disturbed by someone, something, somehow who came to them saying, the day of the Lord has already come. Somebody had come along and messed with the message. And the reason Paul had to walk them through things he had already taught them and that they already knew is because they had forgotten and now they were afraid. They lost sight of God's plan and God's truth. And so my point is, Paul wasn't writing here just to inform. He wasn't just writing to deliver doctrine. Here's some prophetic information. Go home and make a chart. That's not what Paul was after here. Paul wasn't writing to inform so much as he was to reassure. He was writing to comfort. He was writing to encourage and to remind them of some things that were true. And while it's just a hunch, I think that's what's behind Paul's question in verse 5. Don't you remember what I told you? I told you about this stuff. But I told you something else, and it's right here in this passage. Don't you remember, while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In other words, you're all shook up, but you don't need to be. You don't need to be rattled and worried and afraid. Why? Well, there are a couple of assurances we can cling to. Number one, 
Paul says these are the two assurances that should overrule and banish any fear you have about the day of the Lord. Number one, Jesus will return. Jesus will return. And sometimes we say that and we hear that and we say that to one another so much we we forget the, the power of that reality. That Jesus Christ will return. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now we request you, brethren. Paul's coming at him humbly, but he's coming at him hard. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, don't be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. He will keep his promise. And when Jesus comes back, it's so good that he says it in verse 2, we're going to be gathered together with him. And so we will always be with the Lord. He told them that in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, very, very clearly. Paul says, remember guys, here's what he's saying, this life is not all there is. What you're dealing with today is not the whole story. What you're up against is not the last word. Jesus is coming back. Again and again, he has not forgotten us. He, ha- he will not forsake us. He's not slow about his promise, Peter tells us in another passage. By the way, he said, when he told us he was coming back, he said, by the way, gang, come in quickly. I'm, we may be struggling with that. 2,000 years doesn't seem quick, but he meant it when he said it. He's coming quickly. He says, so be assured. Don't be rattled. Jesus is coming back. He's got a plan. It's under control. And that means that leads to the second assurance he gives us here which is because Jesus will return, the trouble won't last. Whatever trouble's coming, whatever trouble is, will not last. You know what I love about his his introduction here uh, to us of the Antichrist in this passage? He says, here's what this guy is, what he's going to be like, the stuff he's going to do. What I love about this, and I didn't see it the first time, but I'm so glad I read it again and found it is this, that before, look at your Bible, before Paul even finishes introducing this man of lawlessness, sin, antichrist, whatever you want to call him, before even finishing his introduction and explanation, Paul clearly and dramatically tells us of his destruction. Look at verse 8. This is fantastic. Actually, verse 7, he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He who restrains him will do so until taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. And I'm going to tell you some stuff about him, but let me tell you something better first. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. By the breath of his mouth. What's he saying? He's saying the same breath that spoke the universe into existence. The same breath that spoke life into Adam, the first man. Same breath that blew back the Red Sea and allowed God's people to cross. And time and time again, that breath is going to blow this dude right off his throne. And he's going straight from his throne, straight to hell, where he will remain forever. Paul says, I'm going to tell you some more stuff, but let me just just ease your troubled minds before I even get started. His time is short. And the trouble will not last. There will be trouble but it won't last long. Evil will lose. Jesus will win. And as Christians, by the way, we're on the winning team. All of which presents us with one more thing I want you to see, and then we're done. We've got three signs the end is near. We've got two assurances that we can cling to. And when you put it all together, the bottom line is there is one truth that as believers we must learn to live by. One truth that as believers we must learn to live by. Because Well, as you sit here this morning, maybe you appreciate, you're one of those people who appreciate sort of the historical insight and background, know a little bit more about Thessalonians and what this letter is all about. That's good. 
And maybe you're one of those folks, and maybe it's the same people, who are, are kind of excited and jazzed up about the prophetic insights as well. Here's what the Bible says about where time and, and history and, and the world as we know it is going, and that's great. You may appreciate, you may enjoy hearing about those things. But at the same time, you ought to be asking a question. It's the same question we come back to here all the time. Two words. So what? Right. So what? It's interesting, it's compelling, it's exciting, it's comforting, but so what? What difference does this make for people like us today? Well, the fact of the matter is this, and you don't need me to tell you, I'm just going to say it. The world we live in is a scary place, right? Some of us would say, as we look at our lives, as we get a little older, it may be scarier than we ever remember it being before. That may just be 24-hour news, but I actually think it's that bad. It's a scary place. There's bad stuff going on. Even without an apostasy, a man of sin, and a removal of restrainer, there's more than enough trouble to go around. There's more than enough worry to keep us awake at night. There's more than enough fear for us to wake up wondering, what is today's sunrise going to bring my way next? And I have a hunch a whole lot more of the world feels that way than we think. We think everybody's happy, and I don't think they are. People are afraid for all sorts of different reasons. But one more time, what did Paul say to us in verse 2? Look at your Bible. What did he say? He said, I don't want you to be quickly shaken from your composure. I don't want you to be disturbed by anything, a spirit or a message or a letter, as if it came from us. In other words, as if it was coming to you straight from God, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And here's my point. If Paul could say that to a group of people, who are worried about the worst season of history this world is ever going to see. Don't be afraid. No, 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 don't be afraid. Stop. Don't give me your excuses. Don't give me your yeah buts. If he can say that to people who are worried about the most fearful season of history ever, isn't he qualified to say that to you, to me today, with whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're up against, whatever you're fearful of? Doesn't he have the right to say it? Doesn't he have the authority to say that? If you can say it to the worst of the worst, and maybe that's why it's here. So that in all the other stuff, that's really hard too. Listen, not minimizing it. I'm just saying it's not as bad as what we're talking about here. In terms of its scope or its intensity, he can say the same to us. The Lord himself can say to you, and he does say to you this morning, the trouble won't last. Jesus is on the way. And the only question is whether or not we believe it. That's always the question, because without faith, it's impossible to please God to walk with him. Because the one truth we must learn to live by, it also so happens to be today's big idea. So get it all down at once, because here it is. The one truth, therefore, we must learn to live by is this, that panic has no place in a believer's life. Panic about the future. Panic about life has no place in a believer's life. Life And so in this, mor- this morning, as we go to prayer, if you're panicked, you need to talk to Jesus about it, all right? You can listen to me pray better if you talk to him yourself. Say, what's the stuff? What, what's going on? What's churning? You got to name it. You tell him, Lord, just as we go to prayer, just in the quietness, Lord, you know I am a panicked person this morning. I'm worried. I'm uptight. I'm anxious about fill it in. And say, Lord, I'm just not here to tell you. I'm here to hand it to you. And I'm asking that you would do for me what you do in so many other places you say you'll do in your word, which is replace my fear with your peace. 
my anxiety with your hope, my despair with your joy. And if you don't know Jesus, well, then you've got the biggest decision of all to make, to yield your life to him and say, Jesus, save me. Give me that eternal life and all the hope and joy that comes with us. So let's just bow our heads, and I'm going to pray in a moment. But just quietly, silently, each one of us, Lord, this is what it is. And I hand it back to you. I give you my life. I give you my troubles. I cast all my cares upon you. I might have to do it again tomorrow. But I'm going to give it to you today because I want to walk this day as a, as a joy-filled, hopeful, calm believer in Jesus Christ. Bold in my faith, but not ruled by fear. Father, this is a message for the days in which we live. It's a message for the hearts, the stuff that goes on in our hearts, the hearts we carry around with us everywhere we go. Father, may we remember truly as believers in Jesus to keep our eyes and our affection and our minds and hearts fixed upon Jesus, the one who banishes all fear, who came into the world as light to cast out the darkness. Oh God, would you do that in our hearts and lives today? Father, we continue to pray that you would make us revival-ready people. Revival-ready people, Lord, they didn't panic is not part of the equation. Father, we pray that you would bring revival to this church, to our lives, to our heart, to this land. Father, we would shine brightly for Christ, whether the days are good or whether the days are hard. Father, I pray that you would take the things of truth spoken this morning and you would seal them to our hearts and take everything else and just cause it to be forgotten so that we leave savoring rejoicing in, walking only with Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.